Is your loved one suffering from drug addiction or alcoholism? Hope is Alive is an organization with a proven track record of helping addicted men and women radically change their lives. With 20 plus homes across the U.S., Hope is Alive Sober Mentoring Program provides safe, structured, and faith-based environments where men and women can truly change. In fact, over 80% of the residents who complete the 18-month program celebrate a fully recovered life. If you or someone you love is ready to make a change, Hope is Alive is your next step. For more information, visit hopeisalive.net. I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help. And I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident in the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. All right, welcome to the Hope Dealers Podcast, season two video debut for those of you watching. Thank you so much. And uh, for those of you listening, thank you again for tuning in. We're so excited to be here today. Um, we've got a wonderful guest here with us, my good friend, Ari Patchen. How are you, sir? I am doing incredibly well. Thank you so much. I am uh, learning the proper podcast etiquette in this very moment. Yeah. And I am super excited. Well, we're happy to have you here, man. You had a bit. You had a busy day so far. Busy, busy bee. Yeah, uh, Fridays are always uh, crunch time in my position. Yeah, you know, which is what? Oh yeah, great question. Yeah, uh, yeah. So currently, I work as the community outreach coordinator. Okay. For Hope Is Alive Ministries in Oklahoma City. Gotcha. So you're based out of here in the, in the central office. Specifically, yes. Gotcha. And you've been working here for how long? Two years. Two years. February 1st. Wow. It's been a long two years, but it's gone very quickly. What a fun two years. Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah. So much fun. I mean, but as somebody who's a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, I mean, when's the last time you kept a job for two years? (laughs) You know, um, you know, I've had probably, I know exaggeration, 50 jobs. Really? Which is not something I'm proud of, but it's just a reality of just a fact. What my life looked like in addiction. You yeah. Know, I've probably had that many phone numbers too. So. Okay. <laughs> I remember us talking about that one night on the way home from uh, our uh, our AA home group. Right. And I forget who was with us. It was you, me. It was Grant who said yep. he's had the same. I know. I was blown away. Yeah. He's had the same phone number since what, like middle school or something? Right. right. That's just <laughs> outrageous to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as I've had this job, I've had the same phone number. So I'm super proud of yeah. both, both of those things. There you go. Yeah, I've had the same phone number going on in, I guess, five years now. That's the longest I've kept one in ever. I don't think my parents' home phone when I was a kid counts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a community outreach coordinator here in uh, Oklahoma City. Can you tell our listeners and viewers kind of what that means? Yeah, so Hope is Alive, specifically what my job entails is is donor relationships. Okay. um, Fundraising. Um, getting people um, to know what Hope is Alive is in the community. So the program that we provide uh, sponsorships to the events. Yeah. Uh, working with volunteers, um, resources. I just had lunch with a, a legal group 
that wants to come in and provide free legal services to our residents. Okay. Um, providing speakers, meals, Sunday nights, connecting with local churches. So a lot of uh, interaction with people in general. Oh, man, every day. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I never thought in my wildest dreams, you know. Didn't always see yourself as a people person? You know, I, I always like to be around people, but I always have kind of like to be on the back end behind the scenes. And so that's not the case today. Right. I get to make, you know, dozens of phone calls a day and texts and yeah, um, really be the um, spokesman for Hope is Alive in Oklahoma City. And so I'm, I'm incredibly honored for that. That's awesome, bro. Yeah. Yeah. Art, you always do seem busy. Um, you know, we to do these podcasts, we have to schedule it obviously with anybody who's on here. Um, it's very rare that you're going to ever find somebody on our team um, that is close to 60 people deep that can just right. do it on a whim. I think this is the third time. Uh, thir it was This was the third invite true. Ari had to the podcast. This is true. Um, and I'm just honored Yeah, um, that you fit me in today. Um, We're happy to have you here. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I think part of that is I'm making up for a lot of lost time. Sure. You know, and so the mission is critical. Time, time is short. short and lives are on the lives line. On the, yep. So we got to get after it. Absolutely. And uh, so you've been doing the community outreach, you know, thing for a while, but you also, when you started, you did a lot of events. Correct. Correct. And you and I worked side by side quite a bit. Fun um, times. Fun times. Yes. A lot of traveling. A lot of traveling. It was great. Yeah. The North Carolina trip was one for the ages. I will never forget that as long as I no, live. That um, was, uh, I, I think I've probably brought that up on this podcast, like, I don't know, at least six times. And because anytime I have, whether it's like somebody who might have something to do with our market there or somebody who's from there, I'm like, yeah, I, I've been there. Yeah. That was, uh, but that trip was just, was, sometimes, you know, didn't yeah, feel like a work level. trip. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Was, you know, I mean, cool how we got to stay on the beach. Yeah. Beautiful home. <laughs> you know, we got paid to do that. Yeah. You know, we'll also, you know, getting to, um, engage with the local community and absolutely. host an event and, yeah, two events. Two events, yeah. And not to mention, the one thing about that trip that uh, always sticks with me, and I thought about when we were at your birthday a couple of weeks ago, is... That was a fun time, too. Yeah, that was yeah. a great time. Um, fishbowl. Fishbowl. Gotta play fishbowl. <laughs> uh, Don't ever play with Trevor Mathis, though. Uh, no. Yeah. No, a little, little, little too loud. We love you, Trevor. Yeah. But no. <laughs> um, no, but... Uh, but Jamie, one of our Southside Correct. residents, was at your birthday. Oh, yeah. That was a, what a cool story. So. And we met him in North Carolina Correct. at an event, but he, yeah. he was still hurting mm -hmm. badly when we met him out there. Absolutely. Now he's here in Oklahoma City just killing it. Yep. I mean. Those yeah, are, so one of the, you know, if I, if I may, yeah. one of the cool things about Hope is Alive is the, the, the reach that we have. Yeah. And so for, our, for a partnership to extend, you know, that many states over, and for, for the community to want what Hope is Alive has um, and for them to see the value in sending their people, you know, back across from, you know, four or five states um, is why Jamie's life is, is doing so well. Absolutely. So he had to get out of North Carolina. Yeah. And we had an opening in Oklahoma City. And um, uh, I have the incredible honor of actually being uh, Jamie's AA sponsor. That's and awesome. so getting to walk with him, you know, almost every day um, through the many things that life is producing for him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, Jamie had to get out of North Carolina. Um, 
that's the case for a lot of people and hope is alive is we might have a house or a market, you know, where they're from, but it's not where they need to be. Right. I had a lot of friends, uh, cause you know, I'm from Dallas and, uh, when we opened the Dallas house, even though it was you know three years after I arrived at hope was alive and I'd already graduated by that point, but I had a lot of friends asking, Oh dang, man, don't you wish they would open that Dallas house when you were first coming in? And I was like, no, right. I, that, I did not need to be there. Right. Um, it's a tough pill for some people to swallow though. Absolutely. You know, even if it's just an hour and a half down the road, like, Hey, you're from Oklahoma city, man. Why don't you try Tulsa? Mm-hmm. Or why don't you de- take it a step further and go to Wichita? Right. Um, but the coolest thing for me, I think that I see is a lot of these people that do that, that have the willingness mm-hmm. to make that jump, to make, take that step and go outside of their comfort zone and, you know, uh, go to a different, whether it's a city state, whatever, um, is whenever they make a home out of it. Mm-hmm. And when, then, and when their residency is over, right. they, they decide to stay. Right. And that's just one of the, you know, one of the many miracles yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you aren't a uh, person in recovery, then this, this may not resonate with you. But, you know, the, the one thing that I've always loved about people in recovery is that we are, we are community-minded. Right. And so when, when you can surrender to recovery, you know, and the community that you're placed in, yeah, then it, it's a great way to start over. Absolutely. You know, in a home. Yeah. Uh, with a, a, a community of guys that are like-minded and, and striving for the same goal. Yeah. They they get it. Right. They uh, either are where you're at, they've been where you're at, um, but you're all striving towards the same goal no matter what your background is. Correct. Um, that was one of the craziest things for myself and for a lot of uh, residents, I think, is before you come into something like this, you know, sometimes the case is you you're hurting so bad and you, but you hear people telling you, well, I get it, man, I get it. And you're like, but you don't get it. Right. Whether it's family, friends, whoever, uh, then you show up here and they say, I get it. And you have to take a step back and, oh my gosh, they really do get it. Right. It's a pretty wild thing. It is. Um, but you're not from Oklahoma city. Not originally. No. Okay. Where are you originally from? Yeah. So I, I was born, um, small town, uh, Kansas, Kansas. Um, but moved pretty quickly. Um, to New Jersey, Jersey, yeah, Jersey Shore, South Jersey, yes, Cape County. Okay, exit zero on the Garden State Parkway. <laughs> uh, Still got that memorized. Oh yeah, love it. I, uh, I loved growing up on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, you know, I can just remember, you know, our first house was a block away from the beach. Wow. And so as early as ten, eleven, twelve, you know, surfing every day and joining surf club and competing. And, you know, that was my life. I, I love that aspect of, of the East coast is the ocean. For sure. And I know we've talked about this a few times, but you know, being an East coast guy, are you a, are you a New Jersey devils fan? Or? <laughs> I'm not a devils fan. <laughs> okay. I, uh, unfortunately I, uh, I stay close. I stick close to my roots, which my father embedded in me, and that's the Rangers. Yeah. I've actually gotten to see uh, Gretzky. Wow. Uh, Madison Square Garden. Okay. Patrick, where had yeah. the honor of actually taking my dad's hat and throwing it on the rink. And that that's was, awesome. It was a cool moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad's also from New York. And right. 
Uh, but me growing up in Dallas, Dallas Stars are my number one. New York Rangers are my number two. They play in different conferences. Mm-hmm. The only time they're going to meet up in the postseason is if they both got both got to the finals. So right. Generally, it gives me someone to root for all year long, no matter what. But what's funny is a lot of my friends will think because I'm from Dallas that I'm a Cowboys fan. Sure. When I was a kid, I'll never forget, I was probably in first or second grade. My dad went and, you know, we were getting new school clothes. My dad bought me this New York Giants jacket. Mm-hmm. I was like seven. I've had one of those. Yeah. yeah. And I said, uh, but I asked, I was like, wait, is this the right team? And he said, listen, <laughs> he said, we do live in Dallas. You know, you want to root for the stars? Go ahead. I root for the Texas Rangers. Uh, Go ahead. You want to root for the Mavericks? I don't care. You're not rooting for the Cowboys. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good man there. Yeah. Uh, and it's so funny how you, I just bring that up because you said, that your dad embedded that in you. And it's like, to this day, I've tried over the years, cause I'm from Dallas. I like, you know, sure. I've it been to make sense. Yeah. I've been to New York on vacation a few times to go see his family, but I've, I'm not from New York. Yeah. I've tried so many times to get into the Dallas Cowboys. And every time I watch, I'm just like, I did no. Yeah. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my dad was born and raised in New York upstate. And then, you know, eventually his family, uh, moved to New York City, where they had a, a corner store. Wow! Back back in the '40s and '50s. Okay. Um, and so my dad is Jewish. Okay. Uh, and so very Orthodox Jewish neighborhood back in the you know the '40s and '50s. Yeah. And uh, you know he's got lots of stories of of people he's run into down there. And uh, I'm sure he does. I I would love to sit down and hear some of those stories. Sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another time. Yeah, another time. That's yeah. for another podcast. One of these days. Um, how much sobriety do you have, Ari? Yeah, so 34 months. 34 months. Yep, March 4th, I will have three years. That's awesome. And I, I love that I get to remember that date because it is one of the only dates on the calendar that is an actual command. Really? March 4th. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, awesome. Congratulations. I, I am very proud of that time. Um, you know, I'm only promised today. Sure. Um, but for the first time in my life, from the point of the first substance coming into my body at 12 years old, yeah, um, I, I can proudly say that I, I don't, I no longer feel like I'll ever put something in my body to change the way I feel. I love that. Yeah, and it was a long time coming for me. Yeah, on that note, I mean, how long did you spend in your addiction? Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think my addiction started well before I actually put anything physically into my body. Um, but, you know, for the chemical addiction, I, it started, you know, it's kind of fuzzy, but between 12 to 14. Okay. Uh, my first stint with alcohol, per se, was um, at 14. Okay. Uh, where I actually overdosed. My blood alcohol level was 0.387. Um, wow. alcoholic coma for two days in the hospital, had no recollection of, of any of that. Yeah. Except I was trying to avoid pain. Wow. And I had learned early on that if I wanted to do that, then drinking could take that from me. It's a very common theme for a lot of us who, uh, are alcoholics. It just takes away the pain. Right. It makes you feel better. Coping mechanism. Absolutely. I was talking to Robert about this on a, a few episodes ago. I'll never forget when I had this friend who I was out drinking with one night 
and he had been told uh, we were on our way to the bar and he had been told by his, you know, buddy slash roommate slash landlord, like, Hey man, this month you can't be late on bills. Can't do it. 500 on the first, gotta have it. Right. And we're sitting there taking shots and I wasn't going to say anything because it wasn't my business. And he looked at me and he goes, I love this. And I said, what? He goes, liquor and the feeling of just not caring. Right. And I said, how are you going to pay that? Those bills though? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. But right now I don't care. Yeah. And we ended up taking, but we all ended up taking that to such a large extreme. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think when I, what happened for me in that, that moment when I was 14 is when I came to in that hospital and I, I can still remember pulling the catheter out. Don't, don't recommend doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and you know, I will, I absolutely love my parents. I'm not here to place blame on my parents at all. Um, but looking back, there was not, as I remember it, there were, were no real consequences. Right. It was just, they were just happened. They were just glad I was alive. And so my consequence was I had to go to work. Uh, I had started <laughs> that, that next day as I came out of the hospital, actually that evening, um, I was supposed to start my first job ever. And At 14? So, yep. Um, doing what? I was a bus boy. Oh, uh, Hen okay. Little, uh. Uh, push here. Uh, Henry's on the beach. I don't even know if it's still around, but Henry's on the beach. Yeah. Bus Cape, boy. Cape May, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, bus boy. And uh, I had to go in that night and the worst hangover you could ever imagine. Uh, so it's like straight out of the hospital into this? Oh, you know, it may have been a few hours, but um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that was my consequence. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, and work for my parents, you know, my, both my parents were master's degree educated, um, very intellectual and both very hard workers. And so in my house, um, you know, learned very on very early on, you know, that you work to get what you want. Yeah. And so I, I absolutely love them for that. I still think that's, um, something that I cling to. Yeah. Um, it can become damaging for some people, you know, and workaholism, yeah. which I, I've, I've dealt with very intentionally for sure in the last three years. But, um, yeah. So 14, um, you know, that was my consequence. And so it going to work. And so the very next weekend, you guess, can you guess what I was doing? Drinking. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so that created a, a, a habit for me, Sure, a mindset of, you know, I've, I've got to come up with the money, so I've got to work, but then I'm going to lie to my parents about what I'm doing. Cause they didn't want me to be drinking. And, sure. Um, never, never under it, never understanding fully what was happening inside me. Yeah. You know, I was detaching. And so at a very young age, you're already just building this up in your head that this is what you're good at. This is just kind of what's normal. Normal and a solution. Solution. To the inability to process my emotions. Mm. Anything outside of Ari's control. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had a proper outlet to be able to process that. Right. And alcohol became that outlet for me. And so this continues on through high school through. Yeah, absolutely. So 14, I, 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 this may not make sense to some people, but I, I think the very first time I drank alcohol, I was alcoholic. Right. And so I had all the tendencies already, you know, starting from trauma at five years old, inability to process things, 
um, very selfish, self-centered person, um, trying in every possible way I could to escape, mm -hmm. not deal with life, yeah. fear, conflict, uh, lots of emotional abuse in my household. Okay. Um, so wanting to escape all that, um, alcohol was just, just the go-to. Just, so just a continual escape for you. Continuous. So yeah. 14 alcohol began. I'm working full time. I have a lot more freedom than I, I, I did where I grew up South Jersey. It's a, a tourist trap. Yeah. They call it, um, shoebies. Um, <laughs> so a shoebie on, on the Jersey shore is, uh, vacationers who come with, uh, knee high socks and Velcro sandals. And yeah. they'll come walk on the beach in their speedos and uh, anyways. Somebody called me a shoebie when we were in North Carolina. Not for that reason. Right. I was, I think I was wearing a hoodie of the name of the island we were on. There, you're shoebie. Yeah. 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 That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. But that's why, uh, I, that's why I laughed at shoebie. So right. could, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah. So I started, um, I lived in this area where it's, you know, summertime, there's two to 400,000 people. Um, in the wintertime, there's 30,000 locals. Right. And so it's a place to, as a child, you know, it was safe. Yeah. So I could, you know, ride my bike with my friends everywhere, stay out past dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and when addiction entered in the picture, it was just the perfect way for me to continue that type of lifestyle. I see. And so marijuana entered at 14, very much the gateway drug to, for me yeah. to start hanging out with the wrong people. And so I'm a horrible criminal. I get, it's God's mercy, really. Because I get caught at almost everything that I do <laughs> every single time. By the law. <laughs> oh, by the law, by my parents, by adults, by, you know, healthy people. Yeah. Um, and so I quit high school um, sophomore year. I failed. Okay. I did absolutely zero homework. And so, yeah, that's, that's not a good look. Yeah. Um, for the principal and uh, the teachers. And so I went to a private Christian high school because I had gotten in so much, I don't even say major problems. I was just a class clown. Right. And so lots of detentions in public school, staying after, um, nothing huge. Yeah. Just my mom wanted me to go somewhere maybe with more focus on education and not so much of my friends. Absolutely. Um, and so that, that was kind of hard for me to make that transition from all the kids I'd kind of grown up with in elementary and middle school yeah. to go to a new school. And uh, I fit in pretty quickly, but I also, you know, I'd begun to drink. Mm -hmm. So I would actually bring alcohol at 14, 15 to school. Wow. Uh, hide in my locker. Um, never understanding what was happening. Began smoking weed. So sophomore year, I quit, got my GD. I uh, thought I was hot stuff. Yeah. 16, I'm graduated high school. And I uh, actually started community college. And just wasn't a good fit for me. Right. I found too much um, enjoyment in surfing. Sure. And by this time, I, I had actually become like a, a small scale drug dealer of marijuana. Yeah. And I had been abusing Adderall. Um, for a long time at that point as well. So that's kind of what, by 17, my life was just radically out of control. Right. Uh, I was drinking every day, smoking marijuana every day, doing Adderall as much as possible, staying out all night. Just anything to mask 
the fact that your life definitely is not going how you may have mapped out when you were a kid. Absolutely. You know, I never in my wildest dreams thought that at 17, I'd be waking up in a pile of my own urine, um, throw up, you know, in an abandoned house. I had no idea how I got there. Right. It's crazy that that tends to be a very common theme for a lot of us, um, who get started, you know, I got started at 14. A lot of people uh, like yourself have as well. And, you know, really what, what happens is our life just doesn't turn out the way we want. Right. And instead of acknowledging that and making a change to better our life, mm-hmm. we instead just keep barreling down the same path. Mm-hmm. We just double down. That was something I was talking to Amy about over the holidays was kind of like, you know, when I would go to a family gathering and I was known as the lush of the group for always being obnox- the obnoxious drunk guy. Um, so at the next family gathering, I would just double down and drink more right. because I didn't want to feel embarrassed. Mm-hmm. So if I would just drink more, that would mask that feeling. Absolutely. And to the outside, like you said, you know, to the outside person, a lot of this is like, what? Right. Just stop. Yeah. But we can't just stop. It, uh, it doesn't really work like that, does it? I wish it did. Right. You know, and, and, and there are those select few that, um, whether it's a, you know, a spiritual awakening or they just have that willpower. Sure. Where, you know, they're tired of waking up in their own vomit. Yeah. Um, and they can quit. But, you know, for the majority of us, you know, that are using those substances to cope. Yeah. To mask. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the desire will never be enough. You right. Know, the, the marriage will never be enough. The kids, the jobs, the security. Um, Not if we don't want it. Nope. None nope. of that matters. You no, know, it's it's surrender. Right. It's surrender. And so moving along through your 20s, you know, I know you said you're a horrible criminal and <laughs> right. plenty of run-ins with the law, but kind of walk us through that a little bit and kind of what brings you to that place of a rock bottom. Okay. Um, yeah, so, um, 18, get three quick felonies, you know, faced with, um, just three quick ones. Yeah. Just, I mean, really they're right in a row, you know, the same thing. Um, so I want to just tell you this story real quick, you know, uh, um, we, we were getting ready as a family to move to Israel, uh, when I was 18, Mm -hmm. I was all for it. Uh, drinking age was 18. (laughs) Um, that's why you're all for it. <laughs> right. Not because of the idea of yeah. getting to go live in Israel, right. which sounds incredible. I know it was drinking age was 18 and, you know, <laughs> being a 18 year old man, the, the women were beautiful and I, I, I wanted to go live there, um, because of that. And sex, so, drugs and rock and roll. Hey, all day long. Okay. Um, <laughs> two days before we're leaving, my parents had, you know, quit their jobs, sold the house, the cars. We had an estate sale where there's these strange people in our house just taking everything. Um, I invited myself to a party that was happening in a hotel room and deemed it my going away party. And long story short, woke up again like I tend to do when I drink. Yeah. Uh, came to two days later in a jail cell. And You woke up two days later in a jail cell? Jail cell and had somehow climbed into a third story outside balcony hotel room and saw fit to try to steal uh, those vacationers clothes and was caught running down the hall with 
clothes on. You know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Who knows what I was thinking? Yeah. But it just so happened that that family was uh, an off-duty, on-vacation New York City police detective. No. And so, you know, I hit the jackpot there. And he woke up and you were trying to steal his clothes <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, you know, his his uh his his long socks and sandals and you know who knows what else. Um, oh, and so that my. phone call with my mom, I can I can't imagine right. what that must have felt like for her to hear her son, who's supposed to be moving with her, that she's getting out of that lifestyle, mm-hmm. is now in jail for the first time. So this is the first time you're in jail. First time I was in jail. Okay. And so you know, fast forward. 20 years old, I am now um, in and out of jail multiple times. They know me by name. I have already had two DUIs. Yeah. And um, 18, I had two DUIs. Jeez. Um, tons of underage drinkings by that point. And uh, I just, I, I had to relocate. I had to get out of there. I was homeless. I was living on the beach, couch to couch. So your family's in Israel. They had been in Israel and then they actually had come back because of other circumstances to move to Wichita, Kansas. Okay. And so back to my roots in Wichita where my mom grew up. Yeah. And so I eventually followed, was on probation, um, 10 years. It was either 10 years in prison or 10 years on probation. So I, I chose the probation. As most would. Yes. Uh, and so fast forward that, that time, you know, I wanted something differently. I had begun to do what we call, um, embalming fluid, wet, uh, angel dust, all kinds of ecstasy, uh, heroin. I didn't do meth, cocaine. I mean, I was just, I was seeking anything I could get my hands on, um, to fill, fill this emptiness inside me. I mean, yeah, so you're at a point where, you know, like you said, you were an alcoholic as soon as you started drinking, started smoking some pot, started doing some Adderall, all this stuff. Um, But if we stay at this long enough, by the end of it, we're not alcoholics. We're not, it's not, we are, but we're not, and it's not like our drug of choice is alcohol Mm -hmm. or our drug of choice is this. No, we just love substance just in general. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty frightening feeling. Absolutely. Because it's just anything you can get your hands on. Absolutely. And now you're grabbing stuff that could kill you. Right. You know, and so back, going back to that 14-year-old Ari, who there's no cons- consequences for my actions. 10 years in prison isn't enough for me to stop. Because I need that substance to mask myself off. Right. To make you like me. Because right. I don't like myself. And so I, at 20 years old, I move in with my parents in, in Wichita. I become a... I had be, received the Lord Jesus into my heart at a young age, but I wasn't, I didn't really understand what that meant. Yeah. And so at 21, that became something I, I embraced and threw myself in with a church family. And, you know, for years, my life was for, for a few years, I was as clean as a whistle. I was, I was healthy and I was happy. Uh, and a moment came where this woman came into my life who wasn't healthy. Mm. And I was very much attracted to her. And, and so, uh, you know, she was an, a partier and I, I didn't really understand that I was an alcoholic and that when I put the substance into my body, I can't stop until I break, break everything, destroy everything. And burn so it all down. It was just within a few, few months where the healthy R- RE went 
all those years of yeah. work is just gone yeah. within a few months. Right. And I want our viewers and listeners to hear that that's how fast it can happen. And we've heard this a lot on uh, here on the show. You know, I talk to people all the time who haven't gotten sober yet. And they'll say stuff like, well, I just want to get to a point where I can go have a glass of wine on the weekend. Mm. And do you know what I say to those people? Mm. If you find that secret, right. please let me know about it. Yeah. Because it doesn't exist. Right. Not for us. Not for the real alcoholics. No. Yeah. One's not enough. Yeah. Like you said, till we burn it all down. Right. You know, and, and my personal story is different for everybody. Sure. But if I put any ounce of alcohol into my body, it may not be at that moment. You know, I'm, I may get away with that one beer for, for that night. Yeah. But I'm going to create a mindset of, hey, I got away with it. Right. I can do that again tomorrow or the next week. And I am a, a speed freak. And mm-hmm. so I need, I need, I need uh, meth or cocaine or yeah. crack or whatever it is. And so basically what you're doing as, you know, talking this out for us is you're playing the tape out. Right. Which is something that is very important yep. for those of us uh, in recovery is to play the tape. Because like you said, maybe it's not that one drink that's going to take you out that night. Right. You might be able to keep it at that one drink. Mm-hmm. But then it turns into two drinks to let's go get some of this to this sounds good too. Right. Um, and like, you, you know, where we're at in your story right now, it just takes, it takes a few months, mm-hmm. sometimes quicker. Right. You know, and for me and, and, and the continuation of this story is that within those, you know, very quickly yeah. in that time, I, I found cocaine again mm-hmm. and I had, I had really didn't want that to happen. Right. And it became, it became everything to me to where I was spending entire paychecks, Yeah, you know, five, $600 a week on this addiction. And, and then that's where it becomes very dangerous because you're stealing, you're lying, you're conniving, you're being malicious just to feed this substance. You become completely in bondage. Yeah, just feeding a habit. Right. And so, you know, playing the tape forward in my story, you know, I I met a beautiful young lady. Um, You know, we had sex one time, had a baby. Mm. Yep. Um, Very, both of us very young, very naive. Uh, we got married, started a family, but she had no idea what she was getting into. Right. You know, I was this closet alcoholic drug addict. And so we had, we had some years, um, 10 years of marriage on paper. Um, half of that, you know, separated because of, because of my addiction. Yeah. And so I, I have always, even from the beginning, it seems like I've, I've just wanted to get right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hated my addiction. Yeah. Cause it, it was when it stopped being fun, it was just bondage. Right. And so we had three beautiful kids today. They're 15, 13 and 10 years old. And in the midst of all that, they, they saw their dad dealing with his addiction yeah. and recovery, addiction and recovery. So, you know, I, I was able to piece together, you know, 18 months, six months, um, kind of just what they call in recovery, white knuckling. Yeah. You know, and that's where I'm just using my will to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it right now. Right. Not today. Not today. Um, but, but it's all that's on your mind. And I, I hate oh, yeah, to cut 100%. you off, but like, and this kind of goes back to 
when we try to go have that one drink, like I was talking to my uh, dad about this a couple months ago. Like, yeah, sure. Maybe for six months, even mm-hmm. let's, let's pretend for six months, I can go out and drink normally two drinks per visit or whatever per outing. That is all that would be on my mind mm-hmm. is the fact that I kept it to two drinks. Right. You know, it's not like normal people who go out and they have a, like they go to happy hour with some friends and they have a glass of wine and they might have a second and then they leave, they go home and they start thinking about the next day, like right. what they have to get done for work and their responsibilities. All that would be on my mind is like, I stopped it too. Right. And I stopped it too. You know, it brings up a good point. So I, I've been to treatment facilities, recovery centers, sober livings, I, I don't know, 12 different treatment centers. Yeah. And in the beginning, you know, uh, I really want, I really thought they would work. Right. You know, and um, towards the end, you know, just to get a safe place to stay and, you know, get people off your back, you know, it's, it's the strangest illness that, that exists is alcoholism. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, it could be years in between and it's all you think about. Yeah. And so I could go to treatment mm-hmm. and know the exact moment I get out, mm-hmm. I'm getting high. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a scary thing to go through. It is. Um, it's really hard almost impossible I'd say to be able to do on your own to get, to get through that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it was easy, that's what everybody would do. Yeah. Um, like you said, white knuckling. And so you said on paper you're married 10 years, but half of that separated because you know, your three kids are watching their dad, uh, go in and out of his addiction. Right. Um, what's the turning point, man? I'm, I'm a dry drunk. You know, uh-huh. and so I, I start really well, you know, never finishing really anything. Um, no, it's not education. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, 50 jobs. 50 jobs, yeah. You know, I mean, prior to Hope is Alive, the longest staying job I have is about two and a half years. Right. Um, and so the uh, turning point, yeah, so... Um, I had four and a half years of sobriety, um, had white knuckled, had begun the AA support group program. Yeah. Only completed about half, halfway. Yeah. You know, got to, you know, step nine and, uh, didn't work a real program. Didn't get a sponsor. Didn't go to meetings, didn't sponsor other men. Didn't work it. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I thought that AA was in the one hour meeting and it's actually a way of life. Right. And most of AA happens outside of that one hour meeting. Yeah. The meeting, you know, and this is just my opinion for me, the meeting is just a good reminder. Yeah. And after a while, a a chance to see some friends. Yeah. And, um, it's kind of something that you need at the end of a long day. Mm -hmm. A big part of the reason that we go on Mondays. Yeah. You and I anyways. Yeah. Um, it's the beginning of a new week. It's a good reminder for the week. It's good to hear some other people share. Um, but yeah, it, you got to take it out of the room. Right. Um, yep. What's the thing we say at the end of every meeting? It works if you work it. Exactly. Yeah, it's good. If you don't work it, <laughs> it's probably not going to work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of cliche, but you yeah. know, those tend to be the, the, the best reminders. I remember early on in my recovery this time around, at least going to a bunch of AA meetings and hearing people get up there 
to get their chip, whether it was a month or a year, 10 years. And a recurring theme I kept hearing was like, I worked the steps. Yeah. You've got to work the steps. And I don't know if it was the theatrical side of me sitting there just like, what a lame speech. Like, come on, (laughs) you got to have something better than that. Um, But after a while, when I actually did start working a program of Alcoholics Anonymous and working those steps, that's all I really had to say. Yeah. Work the steps. Absolutely. There's a reason that every single person says that because that's how it works for you. You know, the way I understand it is it's a program. Yes. And as part of that program to get to the success of the program is the steps. Yes. You know, and and within that you, you get a relationship with God. Absolutely. And other people. Absolutely. So, um, we keep, we we rabbit trailed for a minute. Um, (laughs) what brings you turning point, Yeah, Turning point to hope is alive. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, four and a half years of clean time. I, I fail. I go back out. Um, real bad this time. Um, you know, I, I had to, Drugs or family, drugs or family, you know. And, I, you know, I chose drugs. Yeah. And I, ha- I had a relationship with God. And so I had to go extra hard, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. To eliminate feeling God, anything for God, and anything for my family. And so that led me to, um, you know, becoming an IV user, which had never been anything I thought I would become, and becoming homeless becoming a person who will do anything under the sun as a homeless person to continue to use because when I'm using, I'm not feeling. Right. And when I'm not feeling, I don't love God and I don't love myself and I don't love my children. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to ask. You know, you, this whole story of yours, just like many of ours started off with, you know, masking right the feelings. Right. Right. Or like thereof and... Now you're at a point where you have a family. Yeah. Three kids. Yep. Lovely wife. Yep. You've got a relationship with God. Right. Because you've been trying this recovery thing. Mm-hmm. And now you've got to double down. Yep. On the substance to get rid of all this feeling. Right. And you know, and I, there's no excuse for my actions. Right. Absolutely none. But that's just the reality. Sure. And so there I was faced with family, you know, no longer having the patience to deal with this individual who now has relapsed again, again, you know, and again, you know, the, the little black writing underneath is, you know, 20 plus times. And so now, um, as part of the turning point story, I'm beginning to not think I'm pos I, I'm able to get sober, you know, and that, that was something new for me because maybe you know, this, is experienced how it it. this is, this is, I won't actually physically commit suicide. But if death happens, I'm, I'm open to it. And so knowing that I had a family member who just never gave up. Well, one being my mother, yeah. uh, my dad, but they're in Israel, you know, yeah. and so it, it's hard for them to physically help. The other being my, my uh, Uncle Mike, Uncle Mikey. Uncle Mike. Yeah. And so I was, I was homeless in the streets of Wichita, Kansas. There's a street there. It's called South Broadway. Yep. And, and it's like a war zone. Yeah. And it's just a breeding ground for IV use, um, homelessness, and, and really bad things. Yeah. And so there I was, you know, in the midst of this, what we call the jungle, um, the pit yeah. of South Broadway. And, and my Uncle Mike never gave up. 
And so he would, he would bail me out and bail me out. And in the course of three months, I was in and out of sober living after sober living, trying to get it right, trying to get it right, trying to get it right. And, and eventually I just stopped and stopped making contact with him. And so he heard about hope is alive, praise the Lord from, um, a church partnership that they had where a few guys came and shared their story, their testimony on stage. So hold on real quick. Okay. He heard about this through a church partnership. Right. Isn't that kind of funny? What you currently do for Hope is Alive is how he heard about it. I, I, I mean, it's, I think that's why, you know, going back to the beginning and not boasting, but I, you know, that's why I value so much what I do. And You're I want to stay, your calling, my stay so busy, you yeah. know, um, because God had mercy on me. And is allowing um, you to live in your calling. And is allowing me to live out without my calling. Absolutely. Man, that is so good. Um, so, but Mike hears about Hope is Alive? Yeah. Yeah. And you come. Yeah, he hears about it. And it's it's a few few months. Yeah. And what's cool about what Hope is Alive provides is it's they, they have a, a place, a tangible place for individuals who have maybe nephews like I was or a son or a daughter or a, a parent or whatever it is, who's still out in active addiction where that family member can come and volunteer in a home, mm-hmm. get engaged in the, in the lives of the residents. And that's what my uncle did. He came to the men's home, started, started participating in the Bible studies, hanging out with the guys long before I ever even entered the Hope's Alive program. Yeah. And so, um, as you had mentioned, geo- geographic change is needed. Yep. You know, I was doing drugs in the neighborhood that the Hope is Alive home was in. The Wichita men's the home. The Wichita men's home. Gotcha. And so it, it was not, I knew I couldn't stay right. sober and I didn't want to fail this time. Yeah. And I knew my kids, while I had been distant, they were still there and they were living in Norman, Oklahoma at the time. And I knew if I was going to do this finally, that I needed to be in a place where hopefully one day, you know, I could visit them easily. And so, you know, cool thing about Hope is Alive today is that we have, you know, 25 homes in six states, 11 cities. And so there was a bed open. Come on. Yeah. So I filled out my application. The recruiter called almost instantly. Uh, the next day I was talking to, you know, one of my best friends today, Grant Green. Yeah. You know, and he's, his first question, he's like, uh, you know, you're willing not to date, right? Um, yeah, that's not a problem right now. Um, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, I love them to death for that. But, uh, yeah, so I entered, I entered the program. My sobriety dates March 4th. I detoxed myself off of meth alone in a, uh, best buddy on earth's house. I knew I'd done it many times. And so what I needed was a, a safe place to sleep and, um, some food to eat when I, when I would come to. Yeah. And so I did that for six days and Mike picked me up, drove me to Oklahoma city, dropped me off HQ headquarters. HQ. Yep. House number one in Hope is Alive, Quail Creek. Never had, I'd lived in Oklahoma city multiple times in addiction, but never on the North side. So it was like a, a brand new start for me. And, um, yeah, it's where life began, man. You know, it wasn't instantly. I mean, I, I came to Hope is Alive with a pair of shoes couple socks, a pair of pants, a couple shirts, and um, just the desire not to use. Yeah. You know, I had no ID, no phone, 
no money. My mom paid rent for the first two months. Yeah. Uncle Mike kept a receipt. He still has it. He gave it to me. Uh, he purchased me a month's worth of food and I had to pay him back. Uh, <laughs> yes. I love him to death for that. Um, you'll be, you'll be paying me back for this. <laughs> right. Uh, a lot of cereal and milk and, um, yeah. I, rem I remember when you first showed up, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, there was something different about you. I love that. Um, <laughs> but it was weird. Like definitely you were different, you know, I mean, you had the bleach blonde hair right. and you were, yeah. you know, you were really tan and, <laughs> you know, you had this kind of goofy way about you, but I will tell you, and I'm not the only person to say this, Ari has this thing where you kind of meet him and you're like, I want to be friends with this guy. Love it. Not really sure why, but, uh, um, but yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I mean, it's, I'd been, I'd done the sober living route before, you know, and I saw through what I thought the Hope It Was Alive program was, you know, and I share that with the founders today, you yeah. know, that, you know, I, I, it's just one more program, you know, yeah. it's just one, one more entity that's just trying to make, make money off of recovery. And, uh, you know, that's I, how you felt at first. Oh, that's how I felt at first. But yeah. let me disclaimer, like, that's not what it is. Right. right and right. I wouldn't obviously work here if I felt that way, <laughs> yeah. but I was just in denial. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to surrender. And that's what they were requiring for me is to surrender to the process that they outlined. Right. And I was gonna put up every kind of wall and find every kind of excuse and make up things and produce things that weren't true so that I didn't have to deal with the shame and the guilt and the trauma yeah. that I had walled off for so long. Absolutely. And today, life, life is pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, there's a turning, another turning point. Oh yeah. I'd love to keep touch the turns on coming. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so about four and a half months in, um, you know, I'm doing the program as it's outlined. And what I love about hope is alive is after you peel back the layer of, yeah, we're all here for substance abuse. We get down to what we call process addictions. Yes. And it, I had never heard that word. I had never in the 12 treatment facilities, multiple counselors, no one had ever said anything about codependency ever. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd never heard because I'd self diagnosed myself many times. I thought it was borderline personality disorder, um, schizophrenic. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought I had found the solution and didn't need anybody else to diagnose me. And this is what's wrong with me. And, you know, obviously I stayed in my addiction through that. Um, yeah. But once, you know, my program managers began to teach me on co what codependency is and how workaholism, which Ari, you're fully, exp you know, um, living out, right? you know, um, is affecting your life and keeping you enslaved to this horrific cycle. Yeah. You know, once I started to receive these teachings and apply them to my life, that's where I can sit here confidently with you and say, I'll, I will never put a substance in my body to change the way I feel ever again. Yeah. Uh, Cause I have, I have worked through the things that I didn't know. That I led had, you there. That had led me there. Yeah. You know, I never knew, I didn't come to hope is alive to work on those things, but through coming to hope is alive, I was able to work on those things. And yeah. I, I didn't know they were even there. 
And a shout out to uh, Allison Lang, our uh, co-founder and COO, for uh, writing such an in-depth and incredible program. Right. Um, like you said, man, you don't find it anywhere else. Right. I, I'd never heard of it anywhere else. Right. There was a teaching. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll share this quickly. Yeah. Um, it was about feeling your feelings. Okay. Makes sense. You know, sure. Feel your feelings. Well, here I am alone on Thanksgiving. My family is in Norman, Oklahoma. Ari's not invited. I understand why. Misery martyr. Woe is me. And I'm sitting in this office after going through this teaching about feeling each of those emotions. And I was sad and I was angry and I was crying and frustrated and confused. Yeah. And I, and I realized in that moment that the 12 year old Ari that had begun using is where my emotions stopped maturing. And so here I was at 35 with the emotions of a teenager. Wow. And I allowed it to be okay. I was safe, I was secure, and I was protected. Yeah. In the Hope is Alive mentoring homes. Yeah. Around a bunch of guys who were going through the same exact thing. Yeah. My bills were paid and nobody was requiring anything from me in that moment. Right except to feel that moment. Yes. Feel and that your was, feelings. Again, I love that turning point for me. Yeah. Turning point for sure. Turning point. I love I that. was sold out after that. And that was it. <laughs> well, there's no, been, there's been other things. Yeah. No, I, I, I do. I don't, you know, I've never, I've heard a lot of your story. I've never heard that part of your story. Um, but I do remember there being a time when things, a light kind of switched for you. Yeah. Um, you know, to the point so much where one day I was up here at work trying to schedule a meeting with Lance and I was looking at his calendar and I saw coffee with Ari. Well, right. I had an idea of what that meant. You know, generally coffee with this person means a potential position and didn't flinch. I was like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. I love that. Yeah. You know? That's the same month that I had this experience. So, wow. You know, life radically changed in November of 2020 for me. Yeah. You know, Incredible. Absolutely. Incredible. And today you're married. <laughs> God's mercy. Yeah. yeah and I, I thought I was unmarriable. Right. That's even a word. You know, I, I thought I was too far gone. Yeah. You know, too much trauma. And, and God just blessed me with the most amazing woman. Yeah. You know, she is a graduate of the Hope is Alive program. She is the longest standing staff member. She is. Currently. Okay. On, on staff. <laughs> <Currently. which, laughs> uh, I just shout her out because, you know, it's a big accomplishment. Yeah. No, and, we, uh, uh, we love her very much. She oversees, you know, the entire women's programs and all the staff. And, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, life is, life is radically different for, for Ari today. Radical life change in action. Absolutely. Bro, thank you so much for joining us today. No, I um, love this. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for, you know, just coming on, being vulnerable, sharing, and being guest number one on season two. Let's go. Of the Hope Dealers podcast. Thank you all for listening and watching. If this is your first time, be sure to like, subscribe, share this, let everybody know. Uh, and we will see you again next time. This is the Hope Dealers podcast. A new place, a new home for a while. Let me feel alive. To hold me back, take my time, just enjoy the ride.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel so alive.